on four clocks in front of me, one, two, three, and up there. <laughs> so I can start now. <clears throat> Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. So uh, today we're going through the uh, second half of the Potapada Sutta. And uh, that Potapada Sutta was uh, the Buddha uh, visiting some other um, religious people at the time. They're called wanderers. And they were discussing what they call the higher or the deeper cessation of consciousness. <coughs> and first of all, the word they used was for the deeper, the more profound was the word abhi, A-B-H-I, which many people know as the abhi dhamma. That word is used to for more profound, deep dhamma, and that spawned a whole uh, part of what's now known as the Tipitaka, called the Abhidhamma Pitaka. But it's, uh, it's more information, more suggestion that that word was not just confined to a set of books, which many scholars um, understand uh, was spoken after the time of the Buddha. But nevertheless, at the moment, it does seem to be just means a deeper understanding of something. It is used for Abhivinaya. The Vinaya is the monastic rules for monks and nuns. This is the uh, Abhidhamma. This is the Abhiniroda uh, of Sanya. And also, not just the uh, use of the word Sanya as perception, which is its normal uh, meaning, Words were not used that specifically in the time of the Buddha. It does appear that words were used uh, more loosely. If you ask for, you know, with the heart, the mind, the soul, the consciousness, for many people, it's, those words are sometimes interchangeable. And especially the words for mind, citta, mano, uh, vijnana, many of those were interchangeable, as is very clear in the Pali. So, we have, first of all, what I was saying two weeks ago, the idea of perception was so fundamental, so essential to what we understand as consciousness, that sometimes they were just called consciousness, perception, as interchangeable. <coughs> so, then, because of that, and that is agreed to by other scholars. Uh, I uh, used the word consciousness throughout the Potapada Sutta presentation simply because that is what it really meant uh, to, be, uh, to be said by the Buddha. It's the only translation which really makes any sense. And so uh, my interpretation of why this was an important part for these uh, religious people, they wanted to find out where this conscious dream, and people assumed that the consciousness was identical to the soul, and to get an idea of what the soul has to be, a permanent essence. The idea of a soul which you know, just disappears, or just comes and goes, uh, which is something is more fundamental than the soul, that that is something which um, the word cannot mean. And as an aside, I'm not sure if I said this two weeks ago, uh, for anyone interested in language, 
the word for uh, soul in Pali, atta, you know, the, we have the an atta, means no self, no soul. In Sanskrit, it's atman. And what is the word for what? The Greeks believe to be the indivisible, fundamental essence of material things, atom. Those words are connected. The atma was supposed to be the indivisible um, self, the spiritual atom, which in Greek uh, philosophy the atom was not supposed to be able to be split. It was fundamental, permanent, it what gave stuff its stuffness. And of course when somebody split that atom, that just opened up a whole new field of understanding of the nature of stuff, of the material world. As when the Buddha split the atma, <laughs> in other words to realize it was not a permanent thing, but came together through parts, then it could not be the essence, and it could not be permanent. And of course, splitting an atom meant that that stuff is not the permanent building blocks of the physical world. So, it was an important aspect of people in those days, not so much thinking of material stuff, but the physical stuff, you know, where these streams of consciousness, these souls came from, and especially if they can end. Because if there was an ending to them, there could be a beginning to them. If there was, they were permanent, always there without an ending, it was a different idea. And so from this sutta from last week, last fortnight ago, we started off with, well, what is the, the endings of, of consciousness? Does consciousness end? Is there an ending? Is there a finish to consciousness in the sense of a soul? And how the Buddha so described, you know, through the experience of meditation, just how consciousnesses begin to cease uh, with these jhanas. And please excuse me, the jhanas, people say, oh, this is really too high stuff, but this was important for the Buddha to know through his own experience that certain consciousnesses stop and other consciousnesses come up afterwards. And that was showing from direct experience that consciousnesses are varied and they can stop. And another deeper consciousness would appear until even those stop. So there is the, the gradual cessation of states of consciousness, very refined ones, which was his argument about the cessation of consciousness. Now, that was just summing up a little bit of uh, what happened in the first part of this sutta. Uh, understanding the nature of consciousness was uh, explained or argued, if you were, by the uh, states of deep meditation. So we had some questions last week online, which unfortunately I never had the opportunity to answer because we really did run out of time. So I did. Uh, uh, promised to, to do them today. So I'm going to write, read out three questions which should have been answered last fortnight. If those people are not online now, I'm sure that later on, because this is not only live stream, but it's uh, available as a recording, so you can get these afterwards. 
at the time of your convenience. So first of all, from Holland, from Dini, when we are unconscious, what are we? Well, no, where are we at until we are conscious? Is there sometimes consciousness stored somewhere while we are unconscious? Now, first of all, the idea of we are conscious. Uh, it, uh, well, while we are unconscious, the idea of being unconscious is that you know that you are not. For many people, it's not responding to any stimulus. They put a light in your eye. They shout in your ear. It doesn't seem that you are responding to the stimulation from outside. But that only refers to five types of consciousness. The consciousnesses related to the senses of <coughs> sorry, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Because it is quite well known that people may not appear to be responsive, but they can hear, see, and feel everything. Those are the cases uh, before, the terrible cases when people were under the operating table and they could feel the scalpel, but they weren't able to scream, which was a, a nasty idea. I hope none of you are going to have an operation next week. <laughs> it's a bit scary. It's very unlikely because even these days, anaesthetists have got other ways of finding out, much more ways of finding out if a person's unconsciousness or not. But that is just the, the non-responsive consciousness. And even if one was able to hear, see, and uh, smell, taste, and, and feel what was going on around you but couldn't respond, even in sometimes that that is taken away as well, you aren't hearing, you aren't seeing, smelling, tasting, or feeling any touch, or seeing, or anything. But you are knowing that sixth consciousness can be highly active even if you're not responding. And that's what happens, especially in the jhanas. So for many people who do get into a jhana state, that people think you are unconscious, that you are unresponsive to external stimulus, and also that you are not uh, even uh, picking up that stimulus, but you are still very much aware and awake your consciousness is inside, in the, the jhanas. But if you truly are unconscious, then where are you at? You weren't anywhere to begin with. It's just a space, a gap between moments of awareness. So it is just like saying, when you finish breathing out, and you haven't yet breathed in. Where is the breath? Where is it going? And I mention the simile of a breath because for many cultures, the breath was considered to be the life force. So much so that the word for breath in Pali, Pali, Pali is Pana. Anna, Pana, Sati. And what's the first precept to kill living beings? Pana, Atipata. To destroy Pana, breath. And that is very much the definition. It's beings with a breath. And that is again similar to 
uh, are Western English because what is the word for beings? Animals. What is the word for breath in Latin? Animalis. That connection between the breath and existing was also very, very strong. So a person with no breath, are they dead? Of course not. The breath is a causal phenomena and it can stop for a little while. So where does the breath go when you're not breathing? It's a silly question, isn't it? Same as where, where does the consciousness go when you're unconscious? Same place where the breath goes when you're not breathing. In other words, it's a silly question. It does not really apply. But what happens after periods of unconsciousness, you know, when all the six senses are subdued, it doesn't mean the consciousness is going anywhere. The consciousness is not a permanent thing. It just stops for a little while. And then when the causes come back together again, the consciousness arises again. It is one of the arguments to actually to prove that this consciousness is not a permanent essence. It can stop for a while and then come back again. It's re-understanding, defining, getting your head around this consciousness is not a permanent thing always there. It arises when the causes are there. And when the causes have gone away, it can come back again. Of course, the main simile which the Buddha used was always looking at the consciousness like a flame on an oil lamp. So the oil, the flame goes out, which is the word Nibbanas, ceases. Where does it go? Said the Buddha to Watcha Gota. And he said, it doesn't go anywhere, it just stops. Yeah, but then the, uh, the maid or someone lights it and it's back again. So where did it go? While well, it was dark. Of course, the, the idea doesn't apply. So that's a very good question. Where are we at until we are conscious? We don't exist. We've gone. We disappeared for a little while. So that challenges our idea of this permanent self. And from Norway, there were, oh, this, these, are, these are wonderful cases, little things about consciousnesses. There was a famous case in the 70s of Billy Milligan. He had 14, hey, that's, we're talking about a character. He's, he was a Milligan, was he Terry? Hmm. Was he one of these, 14? I don't know, okay, we've got a monk, Mr. Milligan. That's been A. Kakata, remember A. Kakata? <laughs> Terry Milligan. A famous case in the 70s of Billy Milligan, he had 14 vastly different personalities. Could consciousness take over a body like this? What does the Sutta say? And probably the Sutta we were talking about there, where it says that some beings can actually draw in consciousness into a body and they can take it out again. I hope you remember that, that was part of the early part of the Sutta. It does seem to be that they were referring to just possessions, what we call possessions, which are very rare. It's not that they don't exist, but they are extremely rare. And uh, can you have two possessions? 
like a, a dual possession of a body, one person and another person coexisting in a, in a human body. And, of course, that would be extremely rare. And when I say, yes, it could happen. Fourteen is just a bit of a record. <laughs> but, yes. Now, uh, of course, there are cases like that. I did mention, I think last time, weird cases. Now, that's the stuff of science. They're not anomalies. You can't just put them in a bin and say, oh, that's impossible. You actually see that these actually are truthful, they exist. Uh, of that teacher, I think I mentioned it two weeks ago, uh, his memory of his past was that uh, first thing he knew is a big light and he came from, from that light into this body, he was already a couple of years old or something. And beforehand, that was the body of a boy who had been playing in the village lake with his sister and fallen in the lake to the bottom and was under the water for about seven or eight hours. The sister, I told that story, didn't I? Yeah. And when they found the boy, they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the lake. Just, uh, but they had his, his um, uh, legs high, dragging him out just to get the water out. And he came to again. And this is, became a very well-known monk. I won't say exactly who he is. But that's the story he told to one of the uh, disciples. And so it was his, his body was viable. But, you know, he was obviously his previous stream of consciousness had left and another one came in. Like a possession, but not sort of like a spirit possession, but someone using that body for uh, <coughs> an interesting good life. So, and of course, there's been other stories that for, First, little by little you hear weird stories like this and you think, oh come on, what's going on here? But there's been too many of them to, um, to just ignore because the one I heard when I was a young monk in Thailand which is the guy in the village died and um, the, he, he came to again after a few hours before he was cremated and he wasn't the same person, he claimed to be someone totally different from the next village and of course what had happened one or two hours after he died someone in the other village died and he swapped bodies and the people in the village see it's very difficult because his wife and kids looked at him and was like that's my father he said no, no I'm not related to you at all now, he had his own wife and kids in the other village but they couldn't recognize him he looked like somebody else but his character you know was the most dominant part and so he actually went to live with his his other relations it was like having a new body, they got used to how he looked, but the character and his personality, you know, that was what uh, placed him as belonging to that wife and not the wife who saw him and thought that was my wife. Very complicated and it's wonderful, it doesn't happen too often. <laughs> so can it come into many, but obviously not at the same time because you can switch personalities I think in these cases person called Mr. Milligan, that, you know, now you're one of those and now you're something else. And obviously it must be some type of trauma happens to a person which makes us available to actually to enter. As I've mentioned to some people who are sometimes afraid of possessions or black magic or something, it usually only happens to very old or very weak people. Weak spiritually, very ill. They're the only ones it seems to be able to, to be possessed. 
So if you keep precepts in a strong, easy, pretty okay. What does the sutta say about that? It doesn't say hardly anything at all. It's only maybe this sutta which shows the opportunity that they can have something possessed possess the body. And lastly, from Germany, in a dream we are aware but not really conscious of what's going on. Can you be aware without being conscious? Uh, if you are aware, if you in a dream, you, know, you can, you are conscious, you are aware. But remember, awareness has different levels to it. It's not just black and white. It's not you're aware or you're not aware. In the awareness in the dreams, uh, because sometimes. Uh, it happened that monks or nuns had had fantasy dreams you know, while they were dreaming. They thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? I've broken my precepts. You know, I decided you know, in my dream to kill Ajahn Chah. Ooh, is that an offense? And so what happened was the, the Buddha said that in a dream, sort of it's morally, um, you know, uh, vinaya-wise, karmically insignificant. So, in a dream, it's noticing your awareness is not enough to actually to be culpable. And of course, I collect weird stories. Uh, in a dream, some people, they're dreaming, they're not really aware, fully aware of what they're doing, but they can actually just do things like movements, even sleepwalking. And there was one gentleman who was in a hotel somewhere, Fast asleep, he got up, he sleepwalked out of his room along the corridor and not knowing what he was doing, he walked into another bedroom where there was a woman who was in bed and he climbed into bed with her and at that point the husband came in. <laughs> and the husband, what are you doing sleeping with that guy? And of course, once the husband blew up, he woke up and said, what am I doing here? Oh, I'd be... And he was actually taken to court, you know, for, um, for sexual assault. He hadn't touched her, well, maybe touched her, but nothing more than that, and sexual assault. And of course, I had to get the doctors to come in to give lots and lots of evidence that this gentleman had a history of sleepwalking. And, you know, it was, he was totally in his sleep. He wasn't aware of what he was doing. So of course there was no uh, legal intent, so he was, uh, he was found innocent. So don't try that, you have to have a history of sleepwalking. <laughs> you try stuff like that, otherwise you go to jail. But you are aware, but you are not aware enough to be moral, morally responsible, and also that awareness is just very low. So, can you be aware, you are conscious, the consciousness does not need to have that sort of strength. It's like saying, if you're drunk, are you conscious? So, of course you're conscious, but the awareness and the uh, moral responsibility are hardly there at all. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. The problem, yeah. The problem with that is that you were fully aware when you took that alcohol in the first place. And you were aware when you took those drugs. 
then you lose your awareness or you lessen your awareness later on. But the offense is and you took that alcohol and you sort of uh, never sort of put yourself in a safe place when you did it. So, you know, if you know you've got a car and you're going to drive home and you get drunk, you know, while you're taking that alcohol, you know that. And so it is a culpability. So, in, interesting also that it, I think sometimes, I'm not sure of the legal system, but your culpability is maybe less morally because you don't really know what you're doing. But the same is, you know, within France, the, the crimes of passion, you know, where it is a lesser penalty because they know that uh, when uh, one is uh, enraged or inflamed with lust, sometimes one again, one doesn't really have the same degree of control, which is an, an ability to really understand what you're doing and to stop it when it goes too far. I always was fascinated with that being put into the French legal system of crimes of passion. And there's a sense of that because I don't know, but your relationships is sometimes you would do something to a partner or shout at them or something, but it's still not um, uh, a get out of jail free excuse, but it seems to be morally less um, culpable than if you did it out of what they call cold blood. Not that anyone has a cold blood, but you know, the idea that you're not inflamed with a passion. There is a form of awareness, but not as much. So it's still culpable, but not as much. And just on that, just as a passing, they always said, this was an interesting argument from the Samadhapatasadaka commentary on the Vinaya for monks and nuns, that they say the penalty should be greater for monks and nuns if they do some act which you know, may be just you know, taken as usual or taken as not so culpable for the lay community. You know, because number one, we're supposed to be far more mindful and aware and they say it's like falling off uh, an elephant compared to falling off a horse. You've got a longer way to fall down. Your injuries are going to be worse. So that's why they're saying that some of these things for the lay community are not so reprehensible. They're still reprehensible but for a monastic. It's worse. And it's not just because of your status of being a monk or a nun in that part of India, it's also because you're expected to have a greater sense of awareness and also a greater moral restraint. I thought that was an interesting argument. I'm not promoting it, not negating it. It's a wonderful one for one to, to consider. Anyway, I will go now to the actual, the second part of the sutta. And just to come back a bit from it, I can find it again. Here we go. So it was on Chittahati something. Oh, yeah. Can I get this one on? Will that work? Ah, yes, better. Oh, thank you, yeah, because it gets more questions. On Chittahati Sariputta. But first of all, somebody um, rightly 
uh, commented that uh, at the very end, when um, Potapada, when the Buddha left and the Potapada got um, scolded by his friends, so I'm going to go up to there first of all, which is um, just above number two, it is, is, you see on two on Chittahati Sariputra, and just a little bit above that, two paragraphs above, soon after the Buddha left. You got that one? Good. So soon after the Buddha left, those wanderers reproached, sneered, and jeered at Potapada from all sides. I left that in, I thought that was quite uh, cute the way, sneered from all sides saying, whatever the, whatever the monk Gotama says, Potapada agrees with him. That's so true, Master, that's so true, Holy One. As for us, we don't understand a word of the monk Gotama's whole discourse, in particular because he was talking about the jhanas and those strange states of consciousness they couldn't understand. What they really want to know, he never answered the question whether the universe is eternal or not, finite or infinite. That was to see, that was what they really wanted to know. That was why they asked about consciousness. Does consciousness survive death? Now they, if there's no world, there's nothing to be conscious of. So that's what they really wanted to find out, you know, the beginnings and ends of, of consciousness. Just like in the material religions, the beginnings and ends of the world. That is just so important, how the world was created, whether it's going to end. The, Buddhists, it's more than the five senses, the mind. Does the mind begin? Does it end? What happens to that? And Potapada said to them, I too understand that the monk Gotama didn't make any definite pronouncements at all regarding whether the universe is eternal and so on. Nevertheless, the practice that he describes makes sense. It's logical and verifiable. So how could a reasonable person such as I not agree with what was spoken by the monk Gotama was in fact well spoken? Now, I think it's according to natural principles. That was, I think, what I had before. It's according to, to Dhamma. And this word Dhamma has many meanings, but it's very much so the law of cause and effect. And the reason why I changed the meaning for Dhamma's natural principles was because even I recall going to uh, uh, study theoretical physics at Cambridge, and it was part of natural philosophy, natural sciences, started off of natural philosophy. And really strange, you know, the first degree was never a BSc, it was a BA, a BA in physics, because they didn't have science when these degrees were first, were first uh, put out there. So if ever you actually see any uh, any politician claim to have a BSc from Oxford or Cambridge, you know they're a fake. <laughs> There's no such thing as BAs. MSCs, MAs, but not, uh, not BA, no, not BSCs. It's weird because it was called natural philosophy. That was science. So the whole idea of the philosophy of nature, even the philosophy of the mind, natural principles, that's Dhamma the cause and effect, not just Buddhism, but something which is verifiable and logical and makes sense. So I changed that around uh, because someone objected, I agree with them. So anyway, that's where we ended up last time. 
Now, number two, on Chitta Hati Sariputta. Then, after two or three days had passed, Chitta, the son of the elephant trainer, and Chitta has a meaning, double meaning, of like the mind, but Chitta also has a meaning of like beautiful, variegated. And many people, many Malaysians may know that word because there was a prince, Chitra, who was a Thai prince, invaded Malaysia many years ago and he found the, uh, the city of Chitra, which is up you know, close to Kedar State, not really up in Kedar, but the, the north um, east of the, uh, the West Malaysia Peninsula town of Chitra, and that's it, this would have been Chitta. So it means that beautiful. So after two or three days had passed, Chitta, son of the elephant trainer, and Potapada went to see the Buddha. Chitta bowed and sat to one side, while the wanderer Potapada exchanged greetings with the Buddha, and when the greetings and polite conversation were over, then he sat down to one side. And that was always you know, a, a symbol of you know, the real disciples would just bow and just to show even deference to a teacher where there's the friends would just say, how you going mate, uh, how you been, in good health, whatever, and then sat down to one side. So that was always a, a way of knowing in the suttas you know, who was a real disciple. I mean, just obviously just they weren't uh, di uh, differentiated, but that was a way of showing uh, real big deference. And Potapada told the Buddha what had happened after he left. And the Buddha said, all those wanderers Potapada are deluded about the nature of the, the mind, the consciousness. You are the only one who understands some things I have taught and pointed out as being certain, and other things I have taught and pointed out as being ambiguous. Now today that I was just trying to find another word for ambiguous, it does actually just, uh, the Pali word does seem to, you know, it's almost identical. It means just it could go one way, could go the other way, but it's mostly because the, the question is not, really, um, is not really clear. It's like, you know, what they call in law a leading question. It's not giving a person the answer it's uh, the only one I know, because this is a long time ago, that's, you know, that they will ask a question, you know, um, how many times a week do you beat your wife? And is it, I mean, that's a leading question. It assumes you're beating your wife. And is it, <coughs> and says, uh, none, I don't do that. So that some of these questions, they imply, you know, and, and, uh, something which is not true, which means it's a question which just cannot be answered because uh, it's um, uh, both sides are not true. So here, uh, this, they use the word ambiguous, it's a question which cannot be answered. Uh, so, and the things that I have taught and pointed out that are not... Okay, what are the things I pointed out that are ambiguous? The universe is eternal, the universe is not eternal, the universe is finite, it's infinite. Soul is the same thing as the body, the soul and the body are different things. 
Enlightened one exists after death, enlightened one doesn't exist after death. Enlightened one both exists and doesn't exist after death, enlightened one neither exists nor doesn't exist after death. And it's interesting to see even these days, even senior monks of our tradition argue about that. When a, an enlightened one disappears, a parinibbanas, is there a, a, they go to a, a, um, an original mind? Are they just gone or just is that they still there? Do they merge into an unborn? So they still exist, but you know, they don't really exist or do they exist? So this is something which is important, you know, even these days. So you can understand even those days, you know, soul, is there a soul? Is it permanent? Does it last forever? What is this soul? This universe? Was it created by a god? Is it going to have an Armageddon? Uh, what's going on? So he said, I pointed out they're ambiguous. And why haven't I taught and pointed out such things that are ambiguous? Because also, these things aren't beneficial or relevant to the fundamentals of the spiritual life. In other words, they're not important. They miss the point. And why is because they do not lead to disillusionment. Oh, I changed that one, I didn't got some here. As I said, okay, these are their disillusionment. It's like, um, not disillusion, but uh, repulsion. Remember I mentioned that word before. It is the, the ejection seat from samsara, from the wheel. Pushes you off. It's called nibbida, and it's not just a sort of a, a passive thing. It's a realization which comes from seeing things as you really are. Is what the heck am I doing this for? Doesn't make any sense. Okay, little personal story. The last time I drank alcohol was at university, the scholars' dinner. I mentioned that story elsewhere. I mean that was. Bacchanalia, just the worship of being drunk. And the fact that happened in a, a college, including Nobel, at least one Nobel laureate, and just uh, supposed to be a, uh, a civilized thing to do, and feeling so rotten for a couple of days afterwards. And that was so repulsive to me. You know, imagine this, you know, you're waking up in the morning, I don't know how I got to my room, and just with a part of vomit next to my pillar, and just feeling just like death. And you know, you could very easily have died, choked on your own vomit. Never knew that before, but saw examples of that afterwards. And there you were supposed to be highly educated and civilized. In fact, our, our word, I mean, some of you have seen photographs of me from those age, you know, the big donut look, big hair here and a beard underneath. and. <laughs> That was uh, that we were called young gentlemen. I know other people may have merited that term, but certainly not me. And I was so repulsed from you know that experience. That was the last time I ever took alcohol. See, from repulsion, you see what you're doing. This is crazy stuff. Yeah. From that repulsion, you. Um, that leads to fading away, cessation. You know, you're craving for alcohol, you're, 
getting involved in it just start to disappear and it fades away. This is a, a common sort of psychology, psychology sequence. Repulsed, you know, in the right way, not with negativity, but just you don't want to go there anymore. And with uh, fading away cessation, when it's cessation, it's peace, inside awakening and extinguishment. That's why I haven't taught and pointed them out, they don't need to such things. And what things that I taught and pointed out that are unambiguous, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering, this is the Four Noble Truths. And of course, it's the thing, it's cause, cause taken away, the suffering ceases. And why have I taught and pointed out such things that are unambiguous? Because they are beneficial and relevant to the fundamentals of spiritual life. They do lead to being, oh, I've got it repulsion here, to lead to sort of being pushed away, you know, from the things which cause suffering. From fading away, cessation, peace, insight, awakening, extinguishment. That's why I've taught and pointed them out. Now he goes uh, to the idea of the permanent self again, going deeper into it. There are some renunciants and priests. This is the word for those of you, samana and brahmin, samana and brahmins. Samana is where we get the word shamans these days. But it's usually renunciants, they've given up something, that they're living a monastic life rather than living sort of in the home with, uh, with family and stuff. And also the priests, who uh, still may have uh, a family and uh, stuff, but they are not, um, uh, they're not renounced, but they are still searching for truth in the world, spiritual leaders. There are some renunciants and priests who have this doctrine in view. The permanent essence, the soul, is entirely happy and healthy after death. This is the idea of like heaven ever after. And I go out to them and say, is it really true that this is the Venerable's view? And they answer, yes. I say to them, but have you experienced an entirely happy world? I just they say, no. So they haven't experienced this in this life. I say to them, but have you experienced an entirely happy permanent essence for a single day or night? Or even a half a day or night? I just they say, no. I say, but do you know a path and a practice to realize an entirely happy world? I this they say no. So this is, you can see what the Buddha was saying before in the first half of the Sutta. He was actually pointing out the path for happiness and it leads to the idea that the permanent essence, actually the soul just vanishes. The more it vanishes, the more happy. So, I say to them, but, you, but do you claim to have heard the voice of any deities, divine, uh, um, knowledge, who have arisen after death in an entirely happy world, proclaiming practice well, practice diligently, so as to realize an entirely happy world, for this is how we practice, and we were born in an entirely happy world. I should say, no. So, Potapada, doesn't this statement turn out to have no demonstrable basis? Clearly that's the case, Venerable Sir. Suppose, this is one of the classic similes, which I have tweaked, as you will soon find out. 
Suppose Potopada, a young man, was to say to his family and friends, I have fallen in love with the most beautiful girl in the land. They would ask, who is this most beautiful girl in the land you fall in love with? Have you met her? Do you know any of her friends? Have you checked her Facebook profile? Have you seen her on Instagram? Because <laughs> apparently that's what they do these days. <laughs> in the original say, do you know what clan she came in, whether she was tall or short? And you don't do that these days. You don't ask, you know, what clan are you? <laughs> when the young man says, no, nope, but I still want and desire her, that his family and friends would conclude that this young man was crazy. Doesn't that man's statement turn out to have no demonstrable basis? Clearly that's the case, Venerable Sir. Or suppose a builder were to begin constructing an apartment block by erecting an elevator shaft for going up to a penthouse. Then a building inspector would ask him, have you got any plans? Has the structural engineer approved the design? How many stories is this building? Whose penthouse is on the top? The builder answers no. So, Potopada, wouldn't that builder be considered to be a dodgy builder? Clearly that's the case, Venerable Sir. <laughs> and the simile which you read uh, in the original 2,500 years ago were to build a, a mansion at a crossroads and a staircase going up to that mansion. Sorry? On one stilt, yes. So the whole thing was, ooh, you know, just... Uh, now I've done a bit of building in my time and been to Asia and just the original simile was a little bit hard to uh, relate to. But that one is easier. In the same, same way, Potapada, those renunciant priests who hold those various doctrines and views you know, without any plan, without checking it out, you know, not really knowing what they're doing, no evidence, wouldn't they be considered to be dodgy renunciants and priests? I use the word dodgy because you know, that's a modern word, sort of. Clearly that's the case, Venerable Sir. Now this is where the Buddha goes on to something which is quite original in this sutta, an assumed self. Sometimes they call it an acquired self. Is that what you have in your sutta, acquired self? Uh, Ainsley, what they've got there for that? You can't find it in there. It's disappeared, vanished. Okay, good, excellent. Now, the idea of the word assumed self, because I know that many, many years ago, still a lay person, got interested in all sorts of uh, different paths, especially Eastern paths. And there was one gentleman called Ramana Maharshi, and he was uh, very well respected in southern India. And uh, he was the person who, uh, his path to liberation was to ask the who am I? Who am I? And to use that almost like as a koan. Continue to ask, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Now what, that is one of those ambiguous questions. A much more relevant one than you know, how many times you beat your wife. You know, which is you know, ridiculous. But his who am I is assuming that the I is something. You're just trying to find out exactly what it is. The who am I, it actually assumes something. Now, it's like 
even if you haven't found this ah yet, you know, you know, it must be something. It is like the search for the Loch Ness monster. Does the Loch Ness monster exist? Just because you haven't found it does not mean it doesn't exist. It could be very good at hiding. In just the same way that why is it that you never see elephants hiding in trees? I mentioned that on a Friday night. Why do you never see elephants hiding in trees? And the answer is because the elephants are too good at hiding. <laughs> so you never see them. <laughs> of course, that's a silly joke. If you don't understand it, is you, know, you, you add the story of the U.S. government who designed state-of-the-art camouflage trucks, and now they can't find where they park them. <laughs> They're too good at being camouflaged. So why don't you see elephants hiding in trees? Because they're too good at hiding. It doesn't prove the fact that elephants can be up in the trees. <laughs> Just to say, who am I? Well, you haven't found the eye yet. Maybe because the eye is too good at hiding. So it means you keep on looking and looking and looking and looking and looking for the Loch Ness Monster. But you never find it, but it doesn't prove that it doesn't exist. So, all you do, you can never prove that something doesn't exist. All you can say is, I haven't found it yet. But instead, practical, down to earth, what is, what is uh, logical, reasonable, is who do you assume yourself to be? Which is far much more in line with the Buddha's path. Who do you assume yourself to be? Young, old, Asian, I often say, I said this at the, uh, one of the New Year's Eve um, quizzes, how many monks in Bodhinyana Monastery are Asian? And they're all of them, yes. Some are Asian, Asian, Southeast Asian, East Asian, South Asian, some are Caucasian, some are Australasian, but they're all <laughs> Asian. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, who, who do you take yourself to be? Who do you assume yourself to be? And that assumption of a self, a being, an ego, that is what we actually uh, look at. That is something you can get a handle on, that does lead to liberation. So, here they've got three kinds of assumed self. Potapada, there are these three kinds of assumed self. A substantial, you know, physical, a something can touch, assumed self. A mind-made, assumed self, and an immaterial assumed self. Now, these are referring to what is called in Buddhism, the Tiloka, the three worlds. The world of stuff atoms, forces, but the mind made uh, self. This is especially the jhana realms, Not, nothing to do with the five senses. The five senses can only sort of know stuff. 
but the mind has its own total realm, which is not seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, uh, but knowing. It is the stuff of the jhanas, the mind-made realm. And this other one is the, they call it the, the, hang on, so no, one is the rupa loka, the other one is the arupa loka. The arupa loka is, where was I going down? Here, is of the uh, immaterial assumed self. Referring especially, you know, to those experiences the Buddha was mentioning earlier. And what is a mind, oh, okay, uh, oh, actually it's not really the immaterial one, sorry, I just got ahead of myself there, uh, ahead of my assumed self, sorry. <laughs> what is the central self? It's the body. What is the, the mind-made self? This is actually just when a person uh, dies, leaves the body, astral traveling, that stuff. And if you, somebody asked me the other day about astral traveling, you know, it can be done. And there's all sorts of nice stories about astral travelers. The best one was this guy in Karnat Prison Farm years ago. And he was a, uh, he's a Yugoslavian guy. So when Yugoslavia was one country. And he told me that he could you know, leave his body whenever he wanted to. As a result of an incident in his youth. And he said that when he almost died, and he said they didn't mind being in prison because whenever he wanted to go and watch a football match or go and watch a movie, he'd just lie in bed and the, the prison officers never knew he was watching a movie because he went in his astral body, watched the movie and just uh, saw what was going on and then came back again and they couldn't catch him because they didn't have any way of detecting an astral body going over the walls. <laughs> It's true. And of course there's another person, I know Lynn knows this person, uh, but he's passed away, him and his wife have passed away. But he lived in, in I'll just give a few clues, so Lynn knows but no one else, lived in Cannington, East Cannington, and he was, uh, 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 he was an air conditioning engineer, uh, Burmese by birth, but married to a, uh, uh, an English girl. And he used to go up to Darwin, air conditioning contracts, contracts and he would actually, uh, he was very jealous and possessive of his wife. When he was in Darwin he'd come and visit her in Cannington, his astral body, just to check up on her and make sure she wasn't cheating on him. <laughs> and it was very funny. He told me this in front of her, he said, oh yeah, every time he came, I, I could, you know, she didn't meditate, she could feel him around. You know, she knew it was him. And he said, I better not tell the real name, I was about to say it, but he said, um, darling, go back to Darwin. You know, I will never cheat on you. I'm a very, very faithful wife. <laughs> they use this astral body for that. <laughs> Crazy. But, you know, I no doubt that he did that. There's a mind-made self uh, with sense faculties, so you can see in here. Uh, and what is an immaterial to himself? Non-physical, made of perception. I teach the Dhamma for, Dhamma for renouncing all of these three kinds of assumed self. When you practice to renounce all of these, it's not from getting from one to another, going to a heaven realm, it's actually the whole lot. When you practice according, accordingly, corrupting qualities will be given up in you 
corrupting qualities like aversion, ill will, wanting, desire, or just like um, that uh, um, aircon engineer would do, would still have the corrupting qualities of jealousy. And, and you will enter upon and remain in the fullness and abundance of wisdom, having realized it with your own insight in its very life. Potapada, you might think, corrupting qualities will be given up and liberating qualities will grow. One will enter and remain in this fullness and abundance of wisdom, having realized it for one's, one's own insight in its very life. But such a life is suffering. But you never see it in this way. In such a life will be only joy and happiness, tranquility, mindfulness and awareness. Such a life is blissful. Now there's a little contradiction there. Because sometimes that even when one is, all the corrupting qualities are gone. Still, as the uh, bhikkhuni, the Arahat Vajira said, it's just suffering arising and suffering passing away. What the Buddha is saying here is, yeah, compared to the, the complete cessation, it's suffering, but according to what went before, it's much better. It's blissful, having no corruptions having joy, happiness, tranquility, mindfulness and awareness. Such a life is blissful in comparison. If others should ask us, but reverence, what is that substantial assumed self? We'd answer this, and what I've just explained, especially in the first part of the sutta, is that substantial assumed self. If others should ask, what is this mind-made assumed self? We'd answer like this, this what I've just explained is that mind-made assumed self. If others should ask us by reference, what is that non-physical assumed self, made of perception, we'd answer like this. This, what I've just explained, is that non-physical assumed self. So in other words, the Buddha has actually given that description, that path, what those things are. That was in the first part of the sutta. So you can experience it for yourself. So suppose a builder was, went to begin, were to begin constructing an apartment block by erecting an elevating shaft for going up to a penthouse. Then a building inspector would ask him, have you got any plans? Has the structural engineer approved the design? How many stories is this building whose penthouse is on the top? Then I would actually should do more now. We could actually add to that afterwards. Have you got an energy, efficient, energy efficiency uh, classification? Have you checked the bushfire uh, requirements? <laughs> what else is that? We're getting to know all of that now, unfortunately. <laughs> then the Buddha answers, yes, here are the drawings and certificates. So, Potapada, wouldn't that builder be considered a reliable builder? Certainly that's the case, Venerable Sir. When the Buddha had spoken, Chittahati Saraputta said, Sir, when a substantial assumed self, so while in a substantial assumed self, are the other two selves, mind-made and immaterial assumed selves, fictitious and only the substantial assumed self real? While the mind-made assumed self, are the substantial and immaterial assumed self fictitious and only the other one is real? While in an immaterial assumed self, are the substantial mind assumed self fictitious and only the immaterial assumed self is real? In other words, is this the real me? And Buddha said, no, just one in the substantial assumed self it is not referred to as a mind-made or immaterial assumed self, only a substantial assumed self, just, I'm in my body. While a mind-made assumed self is not referred to as a substantial immaterial assumed self, only a mind-made assumed self, it's just my mind-made assumed self, astral body. While 
or mind-made. What an imitator would assume self is not referred to as a, as a substantial or mind-made uh, self, only as an immaterial assumed self. So it is not that one is the real one and all the other ones are fictitious and false, it's just in one of these at a time. And that's important there because sometimes we think, oh, just the next one, this is the real me. When you get into like an astral body, this is my soul leaving the body. Or you go into higher um, states, just as like the immaterial self of the jhanas of the immaterial attainments, this is the real me. So no, just, no, just one is real at the time, but it's not always real. Can Chitta, suppose they were to ask you, did you exist in the past, do you exist in the future, do you exist now? How would you answer? So, if they were to ask me, I'd answer this, I existed in the past, I would exist in the future, I exist now, that's how I'd answer. But Chitta, suppose they were to ask you, is the assumed self you had in the past your only real one? And those of the future and present fictitious? Is the assumed self you will have in the future your only real one, and those in the past and present fictitious? Is the assumed self you have now the only real one? And those in the past and future fictitious? How would you answer? In other words, you exist, exactly what do you mean by you? Which type of assumed self? The three places you can assume yourself. You know, which one was the real one? So, if they were to ask me this, I'd answer about this. The assumed self I had in the past was real at that time, and those of the future and present fictitious. The assumed self I'll have in the future will be real at the time, and those of the past and present fictitious. The assumed self I have now is real at this time, and those of the past and future are fictitious. That's how I'd answer the reality of just now, the rest is fictitious. In the same way, one in any one of these three assumed selves, it is not referred to as the other two, only under its own name. The idea of the self is actually not permanent, even an assumed self changes its form, which is a real one. And the simile, which I did flag two weeks ago, I thought I would improve it, but I thought this cannot be improved. From a cow comes milk, from a milk comes condensed milk, and from condensed milk comes tea with sweetened condensed milk. And tea with sweetened condensed milk is said to be the best of these. <laughs> Under the original says, if you check it, from a cow comes milk, from a milk comes cream, from a cream comes a ghee, from ghee comes the, the skimmings of ghee. And I know what ghee is, I've seen ghee, I've never seen the skimmings of ghee. And it says the skimmings of ghee are the best amongst these. In those days, you know, everyone knew what ghee was, and skimmings of ghee. I was going to change it from a cow comes milk, and milk comes cream, and from cream comes ice cream, and ice cream is considered to be the best of these. But at least you understand what it means. So, you know, it is something which, you know, has to say, and also, you know, sometimes people complain about, oh, these similes that don't make any sense, but it's also make it a little bit sort of fun, and then sometimes people get the simile, but they, uh, but they just listen to it and it makes it interesting. So, um, so while it is, it's milk, it's not referred to as condensed milk or tea with sweet condensed milk, it's only referred to as milk. While it's condensed milk, it's not called milk or tea with sweet condensed milk, it's only referred to as condensed milk. While it's tea with sweet condensed milk, it's not referred to as the other two just what it is at the time. 
In the same way, when any of these three assumed selves is present, it is not referred to as the other two, only under its own name. These are the world's usages, terms, expressions and descriptions which the Buddha uses without misapprehending them. In other words, even your idea of a self changes who you are. So you can see even the idea of a self is impermanent. Are you old? I say, no, I'm not old, I'm just in an old body. Are you... <laughs> Get real, you know. You are old. <laughs> no excuses. Are <laughs> oh, you fat, Ajahn No, I've only got a big heart. You've heard me say that before. <laughs> it's amazing just how we don't look at the truth. But, am I fat or am I thin? When I was young, I was thin. When I'm old, I was fat. And then maybe, I don't know, later on, who knows what's going to happen, which is the real me. The one now is your assumed self. So as an assumed monk, i just got to do my work by you know, giving the teachings. As an assumed uh, uh, the IT person, you've got to make sure everything is connected. As the assumed scroller, uh-oh, something gone wrong there. Anyway, uh, so this is just how we understand this sense of self comes and goes. So this is again understanding the nature of who you assume yourself to be. You can make that assumption. Now you are a, a doctor, so go and do your doctoring. You are a driver, do your driving. You are a, uh, I don't know what else you all do. You are a caretaker, so do your caretaking. So you assume that, but you know it changes. This is part of when, am I really an abbot, a boss? Only part-time. Monday mornings, I pretend to be a visitor, not an owner. You assume to be an owner, and you have responsibilities. You assume to be a visitor, and you can just have a good time, with no responsibilities. The assumed selves of our life. Anyway, to finish off the sutta, when he had spoken, the wonder of Potapada said to the Buddha, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Actually, only two here. Excellent, sir, excellent. As if he were writing the overturn to, or revealing the hidden, or pointing out the path to one lost, or lighting a lamp in the dark so people with good eyes can see what's there. So too, the Buddha has made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the teachings, and to the bhikkhu Sangha. From this day forth, may the Buddha remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. And I put that down there because many of these suttas, if you read them, if a person got inspired, then they go to refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and either the bhikkhu Sangha or the bhikkhuni Sangha. And it's important there because they became the three refuges. And there were three refuges not to a lay sangha. There's always bhikkhus or bhikkhunis. And the ordination of Chitta Hati Sariputta, Potapada went for refuge, a disciple for life. But Chitta Hati Sariputta said to the Buddha, Excellent sir, excellent sir, as if we were writing the overturn or revealing the hidden or pointing out the path to the lost or lighting a lamp in the dark 
so people with good eyes can see what's there, so too the Buddhas made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, the te to Buddha, to the teaching, the Dhamma, and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May I receive the going forth, the ordination in the Buddha's presence. So he went further. He wanted to become a bhikkhu himself. And Shita received the going forth and the ordination in the Buddha's presence. Even there, the going forth was a papaja, the novice ordination. If you are underage, then you stop there. You don't have the full ordination. But the novice ordination, and then almost immediately afterwards, in this case, the full ordination, in the Buddha's presence. Not long after his ordination, Venerable Chitta, living alone, withdrawn, diligent, keen and resolute, soon realized the supreme end of the spiritual path in this very life. He lived having realized the goal for which people from good families rightly go forth from the material life to one of renunciation. He understood rebirth is destroyed, the spiritual journey has been completed, what had to be done has been done, there is no more of this beyond death. And the Venerable Chitta became one of the Arahas. Now when it says, in no long time, uh, what does it say there? It's, not long after his ordination, he, he got this, uh, the attainment of Arahat. They often say that, but when you actually understand what it meant by no long time, means could be 20 years, 30 years, or 40 years. In the case of Anuruddha, uh, he gave his story. Anuruddha was the Buddha's cousin, and Anuruddha was present at the time of the Buddha's passing away. He was one of the great monks at that time, and he was the one in his enlightenment, they wrote poems about their journeys, little biographies in the Theragata, the Bhikkhuni Arahats in the Therigata, they are well worth reading. And fortunately before that, the translations were just so weird, but they got some decent translations now. But those translations uh, give some more insight what it means a long time. For Venu Anuruddha, 17 years, I think before he became a stream winner, or so one. So close to the Buddha. So that's what it means, not a long time. Doesn't mean just, you know, the next day. It's in the, in the context of, you know, the whole journeys you know, through this life and the next life and many, many lives. So that's considered no long time. So, that was the end of Chitta became one of the Arhats no long time. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, now we do have questions from here, there and everywhere, the three realms of existence. Yes, we've got one from John, first of all, because you are here and there and everywhere afterwards. Okay. Um, Ajahn, can, it, can it be said that on the time of death, the six senses leave the body as a unit, take up the um, mind-made body as a unit, and then hang around for a while, 
and then take up rebirth as a unit. They don't separate. Would that be true? Um, it would be a little inaccurate because the five sense or the five senses or the six senses, you know, are not a a permanent existing thing. They come together because of their causes. And when one is there, the other ones aren't. You only have one sense experience at a time. So instead, what the I prefer just a description of the Buddha of the stream of consciousness. In other words, looking at a stream, you've heard the simile before, that you know that the water you see under the bridge today looks the same as the water which was there yesterday, but is totally different. Appearances give the idea of continuity, of permanence. But, look closely and you see what was there yesterday has flown through and gone away. Totally new water. In the same way, the five, six senses, you know, the, the what we call experience in those six senses, it may feel similar to an hour ago, but it's totally different. And if you look at just the flow of our stream of consciousness, like you look at the water flowing under the bridge, if you go closer and closer and closer, it is not continuous. These are water molecules. Maybe a few other stuff inside there, pollution and stuff. But there are spaces between them. It's not continuous. That is one of the interesting things. It's, it's uh, fragmentary. And that's also, it's wonderful with you know, the modern science, where you do have, I forget exactly the time, but even to see something, if, if it's less than, I think, 0.1 of a second or 0.2 of a second, for us it's why you can't see it, it's, it's invisible to your sight consciousness. You can't really see momentary things. It has to persist, I said, people can actually uh, let me know, uh, is it 0 0.4, 0 0.5 of a second, and then actually it, it can have a, a perceptible image on the back of your, 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 um, on your retina. Less than that, 0 0.01 of a second, so momentary you just, it doesn't register. Too fast, disappears. That's fascinating, the idea of even living in the moment is a bit of an inaccuracy. So we only live in segments, very short, but it's just fragmentary existence. What is it called? Fractal consciousness. Remember fractals? They were really cool in the old days. Fractal consciousness. I always remember that when first came out. I thought, oh, this is really cool. What's the length of the Australian coastline? Just has no meaning. You have to have a scale first of all, because if you just you know, look at an image, a satellite image. You know, you can just sort of trace it and see how far it is. But is that the real coastline? If you actually go to the beach, you see where actually the the actual the sea is, and you just and you go back. But if you look at the sea as molecules, and you go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, it's almost infinite, depending on what scale you're looking at. 
So that it has no meaning at all, you know, for, for, for pure mathematicians. You know, what is the, is the, the coastline of Australia? So I love those sort of factual patterns, they just really sort of start to bend your ideas of measurement. But my answer to those is, you know, that there is a, a, a limit. Because, you know, you can't see a molecule. You can only infer it. Because your perception of even distance is limited. So sense consciousness is again like particles of sand on the beach. Spaces between. You can't have smaller particles than that, they, they disappear. So I remember, I did meet um, Muhammad Ali when I was a kid, he was Cassius Clay. That's with my mate, we went to, we knew he was, he was a very nice, nice fellow. He was uh, fighting, who was it, uh, an English boxer, I forget his name now, but over in White City and so I was 11 years old with my mate, school holidays, went there, rang around for a while. And we saw these African-Americans and say, any of you Cassius Clay, sir? I said, oh, yeah, he is. Oh, great, sir. Can you sign our book? And so sign an autograph book. And he said, do you want to come and watch me spar? Really nice guy. And so he went into the sort of, and watched him spar. And this is Cassius Clay, came Muhammad Ali. Really, really nice guy. So I lost that sort of uh, autograph a long time ago. But I always do remember that, but later on, no, because look, I, he, uh, I think he was just meeting one of his old um, opponents, Joe Fraser or something, and he said, I'm still very fast. He said, did you see that? <laughs> He's only joking, of course. <laughs> he said, that's how fast I am, you can't even see it, Joe. <laughs> he, he was a, a very nice personality, that fellow. That's it, too fast and you can't see it. Okay, we've got some, I'll do a couple of questions from overseas before I miss out on them again. From Germany, there are reports of past life regression. What about the time between death and rebirth? Is there regression into the life between lives? Certainly there is. So, in past life regression, you know, you hypnotize somebody and because their defenses are down, at least many of the defenses are down, now you ask a person, you know, to uh, usually through a little bit of a trick, go into spaces, feel safe. The idea of safety, because fear stops a lot of uh, getting into your past, and a bit of encouragement, but the encouragement is difficult because you can make leading questions, which actually spoil the whole thing. But, you know, people do get that, and sometimes that they do get in between lives. Know where they were before, and they also do get um, in their mother's womb, which is weird. You know, feeling that you're floating in liquid, you know, almost like a fish, but you know you can't go anywhere. So people do have those past life regressions. Those are more difficult to confirm because how can you prove what you felt in your mother's womb? Even this in the space between lives, how can you actually prove that? Many people who do have near-death experiences, they say about floating up all over the place. 
Well, there was one which, you know, those same as the in-between, but most of these are near-death experiences. They do, I was telling somebody, I'll do something on Friday. They came up here and said, I like Buddhism, but can't take on reincarnation, there's no evidence. They were scientists, and I just, I was really fierce on them. What are you talking about? There's heaps of evidence, but people just don't even bother looking at it. And there was the near-death experience where the person, you know, Hi, I was in um, an old hospital in UK and they floated up above their body and they claimed to see a tennis shoe on the windowsill, high up, which you could not see from, from the, the ground. Now they had these high windows, just like in the community hall uh, next door, or like in Jarna Grove, really high windows, so on the operating table, just to get some light, but so people couldn't keep looking in you know, when the uh, operation was going on, but to give some sort of ventilation or natural light. And so this person claimed floating up above the body they could see this tennis shoe. Say impossible, you couldn't see it from down below. And number two, what would a tennis shoe be doing in a sterile environment like an operating theatre? You know, in a modern, not modern hospital, but in a NHS, National Health Service Hospital in the UK. I mean, that would be a, well, how did it get up there? So they didn't believe it, of course, but it was such an unexpected, uh, shouldn't be up there, can't be seen from down below at all, but of course somebody got a ladder and they found there was a tennis shoe up there. She got it right, or he got it right, whichever it was. But you know, that was, you know, still pieces of evidence like that. It's just weird, how on earth? Did they know that something which should not be there, which no one could anticipate is there, but it was there. So that was like an in-between type um, regression, time between death and rebirth. So there is that possibility, but how can you prove that you were a ghost, say? It's a tough one to prove. If it's your past life, he says, I married this person by such a name, I lived in this house. I remember that just one case, which was, uh, it was a Channel 7 documentary, reincarnation, years ago. And this um, her woman over in Sydney regressed. She said that she was a, a doctor, I think in the town of Blagari, I think, in, in Scotland. And it's fascinating because they could find that passport office, immigration, she'd never left Australia. Born here, grew up here, never gone back to, to Europe. Never visited, not gone back, not visited place. So she couldn't have uh, visited there first of all. And 19th century, name was John Archibald Burns or something. And Burns, common Scottish name. Archibald is not common at all. Uh, John or whatever, common. But, you know, what are the chances in the town of Blagari, which, you know, I grew up in, in England. I used to travel into Scotland to go through the southern part of Scotland to go to the Highlands. I love that place. And I never heard of a town of Blagari. But, of course, the town exists. And they got the records. You're a doctor, a surgeon. And she'd have records of that. And, of course, they went to the local library. Heaps and heaps of record. John Archibald Burns, MD. No, not just one, no, 20 or 30, just a prominent member of the community. 
So, you know, little things like that. You know, when there's verifiable facts, you know, give credence to people's past life memories. But what verifiable facts are there if you're in the in-between world? That's why not much research is done on it. But, time between death and rebirth, is there regression into life between lives? Sometimes people can remember that, sometimes they don't. But the point is, it can't be proved. And lastly, from USA, how does this sutra apply to the topic of trans folk? Are they seen as legitimate consciousness with their self as different than their body? It's, uh, I know a lot of people make those assumptions, but some of those assumptions I think are just you know, quite, um, can be quite offensive. Okay, you know, you, you feel that you are female in a man's body, and because you were female before, it could have been the case, but, you know, that's, you know, just a maybe. So if a person is uh, trans folk, they are legitimate consciousness, the consciousness, the stream of consciousness is not something permanent, it does change. And even, I remember an article about one trans person who was actually saying that even being a trans person or being a gay, lesbian, that sometimes they can change even within one lifetime. Now it's not a permanent condition. And I was actually quite fascinated. This is you know, just an article by someone who you know, was in that um, state, which is the, the real one. So, how does this sutra apply to the topic of transport? Not much at all, except you know, that you can assume a self, a body, for know, a thousand different reasons. You don't really have much choice about it. It's a natural phenomena uh, to be accepted and to be uh, respected at all, respected as well. Of course, are they legitimate? Of course, everything's legitimate. Consciousness with their self is different than their body. It's not no such thing as their self, an assumed self. And it's not saying that one assumed self is better than another, you know, or that you have any uh, much choice about this. But you're assuming that self, that's who you uh, assume yourself to be, that's how you feel yourself to be, that's how you express yourself. And different than the body, and your body just res often responds accordingly. I'm a, assume myself to be a monk, that's my assumed self today, and an old monk. But you see, this how you assume yourself, it does affect your body. But you know, you have the opportunity to do that. So I'm not quite sure exactly what you meant there, but uh, this of course is legitimate expression of the stream of consciousness. Their self is different than their body. It's uh, how they feel themselves to be at this time. Yeah, and that's how the body expresses itself. Does that make any sense at all? It's a short question 
not quite sure if I've got it right, and I apologise if it don't, doesn't get it right, but we always acknowledge people's expressions of how they feel, as long as it doesn't sort of impinge upon other people. So if you assume body is like a psychopath, then obviously you know, that is to danger. But trans, gay, lesbian, legitimate and, and wonderful uh, people. You know, sometimes that uh, even being a celibate monk, sometimes you get some idea, you never expect, understand to have a full idea of how it feels to be different, to live a different lifestyle. To the point that even these days, I'm going totally a bit off topic, but I'm not sure, but even these days, that people feel that celibacy is one of the weirdest sexual deviancies. And it's unnatural to be celibate. So, because you live in a community of monks and it's an old, uh, an old uh, sangha, an old tradition, you feel a little bit sort of safe there. But even so, many people feel that celibacy is impossible. When they feel that if you are celibate, you're just repressing something and you're not really celibate, it means you just go and, please excuse me, abuse children or something. You know what happened in many, some cases, I think it was 7%, 8% or something in the Catholic Church, celibates were repressed. But there are some celibates who take that life and they, they uh, love that life. They, but it gives me some idea of like people not understanding a sexual preference. Being celibate, not forced. One nice thing about the Buddha's path is again you can change. As you know, you've seen some monks have. That some monks, they, or nuns, they join up when they're very young, or you know, like me, or even when they're middle-aged or whatever, and they enjoy the celibate life, and they get their happiness and joy in many other spiritual things. And it's not a, a path of self-mortification. Certainly not. This is demonstrates not mortifying me. <laughs> but it's in case another you know, person, the monk or the nun, feels later on in their life that you know maybe you know maybe you just you know, I don't want to live the celibate life forever, then they're allowed to leave. So they feel that no, no, I tried it, but I just really just want to maybe start a family or or whatever, or you know rejoin the group where I came from. You know if they were gay or lesbian or trans, of course they're allowed to. And I think that's one of the most important things, to have the freedom of choice. You can change if ever you want to. If you're happy as a monk or as a nun, stay. But if you really sort of feel you, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, then you can leave with our blessing. Otherwise, the worst thing is to have someone who is ordained for life. And there's no exit strategy if they realize that situations change. So I do feel, I do, as a celibate monk, you do feel for some people who, maybe when they're very, very young, they became sort of a monk, of any tradition or a Catholic priest, and there's no way out. So they feel they do need you know, to go back into the world 
I think it's easier now, but when I was young, it was just hard for a Catholic priest to say, well, I made a wrong choice. No, I just want to leave and you know, just start a family. Anyway, that's just you know, some reflections there of you know, being a um, of being a celibate monk for many years. So anyway, that's my assumed self, and I'm quite happy in it. But if you were not, then please go and do something else. An unhappy monk or an unhappy nun is not a good idea. Okay, any other questions on, on that? Yeah, go on. Yeah, um, when it comes to past life, there's uh, some level of happy habits that we pick up from past life mm. coming to this life. Mm. Is that correct? There is habits, inclinations, and you know, it's. I'm sure there have been some people. One particular um, situation was hey, happened here. Uh, there was a family who um, had a child, or was, she was pregnant with her first child, and uh, when the child was born, uh, it was born, stillborn, it had died. They found out just a couple of days before birth, it had turned in the womb and had strangled its blood supply by just twisting the umbilical cord. It was stillborn. And uh, they, they were a really good Buddhist family, so that they still come here. Actually, they were here this morning. And Fadana. So they um, had the funeral ceremony over in one of the road, Bowen O'Days. And they uh, had little Charlie, they named it Charlie. And they lent little Charlie up and had me in the photo as well the family monk, made it into the family album. And what they did, which when I wasn't looking, certainly when the funeral director wasn't looking, they took a biro pen and did a line on the, the kid's heel. And of course, she was healthy, a young woman, and so they, she got pregnant again, gave birth to a, a very healthy child, but it had that um, birthmark on its heel. It was Charlie back again only this time it was female. And I better not say what the name was. I don't want you to trace it and embarrass the family. It was female, and of course, because they were regulars here, would come to the temple, and you know, she was you know, what you know, you'd call, what my generation would call a tomboy. She liked to hang out with the boys, not with the girls, and just very sort of boyish for the first few years. So, you know, you know why? Because, you know, she was a boy before. She was Charlie. And then after a while, and after, it's usually about six or seven years, then the new uh, life tends to sort of kick in and tick over, and uh, she acted like a woman. So the fact that it's, that, that those sort of traits coming from past life to this life, yeah. does it give a sense of, um, self, uh, sort of a, some sort of a permanent oh, no. coming from 
what it does do, it does the simile in the stream of consciousness is, now you know it's the Swan River by where it's located between the banks, but banks erode the sources of rivers, uh, the, the course of rivers changes and just so you can actually recognize his characteristics which last a long time a characteristic of being sort of very kind or very selfish or mean there's characteristics of you know, people wanting to go and help others or be, be bosses so some of those characteristics you know you can see but they change over the time like the course of a river changes with floods and droughts but you know the it, change, it takes much longer to change so characters which are you know, in there for a long time sort of take a long time to change but they still can change so is it because uh, I'm trying to see if sense of self is carried from past life to this side or not? The word like assumed you assume some of those characteristics because uh, the other simile of a mango you eat a mango now and you please don't give me any mangoes I just came back from Thailand I mentioned this morning I had mango and sticky rice for breakfast mango and sticky rice for lunch for seven days <laughs> I love mango and sticky rice but you know you just get an overdose and I want <laughs> I want to stop for a while before I can appreciate it again. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, eat the mango, plant the seed in the garden, and the seed always changes. You can see it just germinate, the shoot come up, and you see it grow and becomes a mango tree. And it's, it's probably nothing, no even DNA in the, in the beginning mango, which is there in the next. It, it's cause and effect, cause and effect, there's a connection but it's different at any stage in the process you can see the connection and it's different, 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 different all the stages in your life so far you know, it's a connection you wake up in the morning, you recognize it's you but imagine you were sort of uh, as a baby and then as a 20 year old and then now I mean, could you recognize that's who you are? so oh, in your lifetime, you see how much you've changed physically. So this is the same in the sense of self. It does change, but day by day, in the short term, it looks exactly, pretty much the same. Characters change, but slowly. Over one day, can't you see any change at all? But over a lifetime, over several lifetimes, of course, there's huge changes. Okay, so was there anything else from overseas before we finish off? No? Okay, good. Okay, so it's 4.30, did a little bit extra. Uh, number one, because I've got nothing when I get back to monastery except just to relax and rest, but also because last time I had to rush and this will be my last Sutta class, I think, until the beginning of the rains. And so that I think Achasujata will probably be doing one in a couple of weeks' time or three weeks' time, whenever the second uh, Sunday is. So, I did the Protopartisan. It's a deeper sutta, but I thought I'd just give it a try, see how you liked it. And if it was just way over you jhanas and assumed selves and stuff, please give me feedback. If you found it useful, then please give me feedback. 
because as I mentioned when I started this, all the easy sutras have been done. And even this one has been done before I found out. So only the long ones and the complicated ones are left. So we, we are sort of, you can't really call it scraping the barrel, but you know, just, we're trying to sort of find out sort of, you know, what can be really nice for, for you. Okay, so let's now pay respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Ahang Sama Sambodo